Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Salesforce was the first major SaaS company. They redefined how software was used in and sold to enterprise companies all over the world. And in the two and a half decades since their founding, new SaaS software has pushed into every corner of the enterprise. But recently, the enterprise has started pushing back. And the bedrock go to market strategy that so many enterprise SaaS startups depend on might be about to disappear. Today, we sit down with Yasu Matsumoto, founder of Roxel and now founder and CEO of Josis, which provides SaaS management tools to the enterprise. We not only talk about SaaS marketing strategies, but we dive into the important differences between the enterprise and SMB SaaS markets, how to raise VC finance for corporate spinouts, and why we might be about to start seeing a lot more serial founders in Japan. But you know, Yasu tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Yasu Matsumoto, the founder and CEO of Josis, who's providing companies with comprehensive IT device and SaaS management. So thanks for sitting down with me today. Thanks, Tim. So I, I gave a really high-level overview of what Josis is, but I think you can explain it much better than I can. So, yeah, Josis is our IT operation platform. You can integrate all of the SaaS what your company uses and all of the devices your employee uses. Integrate all hardware and software into Josis by APIs. And you can figure out what kind of software your company uses, what kind of hardware your company uses. And also, you can provide account like Slack or Google or Notions, Microsoft account for the new employees with a single click. And once uh, the, our employee uh, resigns the company, you can delete these accounts and devices with uh, just a single click. So it's it's centralized SaaS license management, centralized account provisioning? Exactly. And so you mentioned it's API integration. So it's not that individuals are inputting this information. Yes, our, our product is based on the API economy. So um, the company uses tons of apps after the COVID. But these apps are not controlled by central IT operations. So each of the department install the new apps by their decision-making, or sometimes individual. But from the point of corporate IT or cybersecurity view, that is very dangerous. It is, but it's interesting because that is one of the main marketing strategies of SaaS companies. It is. So SaaS companies like to penetrate from the Shadow IT. Exactly, yeah. Freemium model, don't pay anything until you get five seats. And yeah. Shadow IT is a good for the go-to market for a SaaS company, but uh, from the security standpoint, that is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And their company have to control the Shadow IT. So Joshis control all the Shadow IT. I want to dive back into that a little bit later because I think it's a really important point. But before that, tell me about your customers. 
Yeah, uh, there's a two type of customer. One is the SMB, one is the enterprise. They have a different pain point. SMB would like to use the Joshis for automating all of their IT operation process. They are facing the lack of talent IT operations. So by using a Joshis, a single click automate all of their workflow. This is a demand of SMB. Enterprise company uh, has a different pain points. Usually they have more than 1,000 or 10,000 employees, but IT operation cannot figure out comprehensive IT asset software and hardware. So they lose their single source of truth. So um, by using a Joshis, they can figure out comprehensive IT asset. At the moment, are most of your customers or most of your revenue coming from the SMB segment or from the enterprise segment? At this moment, in terms of the customer number, 10% of our enterprise customer and 90% of SMB customers. Oh, okay. But there are 40% of revenue came from enterprise and 60% came from SMB. I see. Now, you also founded Roxel back in 2009. And, um, that, that's a whole, that can be a whole other podcast in itself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Really briefly, and correct me if I get it wrong, Roxel was an e-commerce platform that took advantage of printers' unused capacity all over Japan so they could get, customers could get print jobs done cheaper, faster, in a more standard way. Perfect explanations. Excellent. Great. <laughs> Glad I got it right. So you IPO'd in 2018. Right. And you spun out Joseph from Roxel uh, a couple years ago, 2021, right? 2020, yeah. So I, I really want to talk about these kind of corporate spin-outs in Japan because I, I think it's, it's kind of a unique ecosystem here. Mm -hmm. So after you spun out, you've raised about $125 million for right. you know, a really great collection of VCs. So tell me about that. What, what does the cap table look like? Because VCs are often very hesitant to invest in corporate spin-outs. Mm -hmm. Okay, in terms of cap table, Roxley is a minority shareholder to the Joshis. Uh, in this round, Roxley invested 2 billion yen. So Roxley is a significant investor, but Lux doesn't control Joshis. In terms of VC, Global Brain lead uh, last round and uh, series B and series A. Of course, they have our rights, but they don't have a big portion of a stake. They're very distributed. So uh, they don't have a control to Joshis. Uh, who controls Joshis is the management of Joshis. I and uh, Sanjay is uh, my co-founder. All right, so, so the cap table looks very, very much like a startup. Yeah. Oh. So another thing that I think is unusual but important is serial entrepreneurship, serial founders are still kind of rare in Japan. Right? I think so. Yeah, like once you succeed, you're expected to kind of run that company until you turn it over to your son or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you decided to step down as the CEO mm -hmm. of Roxel to, to start a new startup, was there opposition from from the board what was that conversation like i stepped back uh, the ceo over a last august 
I talked with the CFO. I trust him very much, and we have been working for the last decade. And I started at Joshis two years ago, and Joshis is a rapidly growing. And Joshis is also a global startup. We are not、uh, local. We have a team in India, US, Singapore, and Japan. So I don't have enough time to manage a two company like、uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't think he has enough time、yeah. to manage either. <laughs> I'm、um, not sure Superman like Elon. So, and also the、um, Lux become enough big for me. Lux generate around three hundred million dollars of revenues and twenty to thirty million dollars of EBITDA every years. And the expansion strategy is become more M and A now.、Mm-hmm. So I like building up the business zero to one and one to ten. But the Lux require me different strategy. That makes sense and there. I have totally agree on the strategies, and I decide the strategy by myself. But I don't have a passion to acquisitions and management of that. I have a passion to build up a business from zero to ones, and so、um, yeah, this is my second challenge. And I didn't have any hesitations to keep the position of CEO. I'm very happy to step. Back and、uh, pass the baton to the our new CEOs. His background is more financial, and so more、yeah. suited towards an M and A strategy. Yeah, I mean, as 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 a founder myself, I totally understand that. But what was the reaction from the people around you? Was there concern that I don't know the market might perceive it as you leaving the company, or you know, like Elon Musk dividing his attention <laughs> between a bunch of startups, or What, what was the general reaction to it? Yeah, it's our、um, my our、uh, very close relation, like a nomination committees or a board or a C class BP. They understand、uh, because after I started our Joshis,、um, I'm s- smiling much more. <laughs> 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 no, be serious so much.、Uh. So、um, everybody feels that are oh yes, sir, are becoming happy. Are、oh, that's a, a best de- decision for him.、Uh, this is a reaction from very close、uh, relations. But then generally, the employees of Roxul or their、um, Twitters、mm-hmm. <laughs> or Medias, they're surprised uh, because uh, this is、um, unusual in Japan. Yeah, yeah. CEOs generally just don't do that unless there's. I don't know some kind of a scandal or health problem, or, or people don't do it for their own reasons. Yeah, I successfully、uh, hide the scandal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 just kidding. I know, but I, I think it's so important that more people do that because, l- like you said, I mean the skill set to go from zero to one or one to ten is really different. Yeah, to go from ten to a hundred to a thousand. Yeah, totally agree. I'm trying to think. There's a. I can think of a small handful of people who've done it.、Mm-hmm. Do you think we're seeing more of that in Japan? Hmm. Yeah, it could be become more common because our. I think our younger generation founder affected their from Silicon Valley, like a Google or American cultures. So we learn a lot from our Valley. So that help us to push forward. Yeah. Well, let, let's get back to Joseph's business model because it's it's basically it's kind of like a SaaS service to manage other SaaS services. Exactly. <laughs> Which I I kind of like. 
Before you mentioned that Joseph provided a single source of truth for yeah. the IT department, I want to dig into that. What exactly is that and why is it important? Hey, uh, thanks for great questions. <laughs> so before the COVID, IT operation can control every device because every device are in office and the number of SaaS is not so many. But there, uh, after the COVID, SaaS has happened and devices are distributed because of remote work. So why single source of truth is important? After the COVID, they can't do that because of their SaaS plows or, as you said, their SaaS vendor adapt shadow IT strategies. That uh, makes our IT operation difficult to control the budget or figure out the right spend or control the securities. So, so what is, for your, your average enterprise CIO, what is his major reason for wanting a single source of truth? Is it just optimizing the licensing spend? Is it keeping track of licenses? Or is it like having three different SaaS products with the exact same functionality in three yeah. different departments? What, what is he, he mostly worried about? The first one is cost optimizations. Each company uses exactly the same function of SaaS. Four, you know, three or five or each of the department use that. And if the central IT operation uh, makes contract, they can get the big discount, uh, but each of the department cannot. So cost optimization is one thing, and the second thing is their security. So usually the enterprise company have uh, many subsidiaries. Sometimes subsidiaries are located outside of the mother market. So they cannot figure out uh, what kind of software the group company using. Many of Japanese enterprise companies had been hacked by hacker outside of Japan as their subsidiaries. And, and the SaaS products are, are providing a, an attack vector for these hackers? So, yeah. As so many of our SaaS, especially the unmatured SaaS, has a very vulnerability. Well, that's interesting. Actually, well, let's talk about, so shadow IT, I think most of our listeners are working at startups and their founders, and they think shadow IT is a great thing. <laughs> um, so I don't need to explain all the benefits of shadow IT, but why do CIOs hate shadow IT so much? Yeah, I'm so sorry to say uh, the <laughs> risk of shadow IT. It depends on the SaaS vendors. If the SaaS vendors have their SOC2 and they have the um, security, that is okay. But there are some of the SaaS cannot provide enough security for the clients. And once you put the, your company's data on there, or sometimes it's our API and from the API, they can store the data over your companies. Ah, okay. So it's security, there's, there's compliance issues as well. Yeah for where the data is being stored and yeah. okay that makes a lot of sense yeah that's a good point because as a cio it's not only important to to be compliant mm -hmm. you have to prove mm -hmm. that you're compliant mm -hmm. yeah and i guess shadow it absolutely prevents you from proving mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you're in compliance it is it is you know, it's funny, you know, every generation of technology is supposed to make things easier, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it always ends up creating new problems. Yeah, that's true, very true. So in another interview, you mentioned that you were, you were going to be getting into a more complete IT outsourcing services, device lifecycle management. Yep. 
where not only do you push a button to procure SaaS licenses, mm -hmm. but you could push a button and have a new employee deliver their laptop and their yep. mobile phone from anywhere in the world. Okay. We are providing our ID outsourcing service. That is not only the management of hardware and software, but also we provide the service itself. That is our BPO. Why we provide that? It's because of the pain point of the customer. Especially the small to mid-sized customer, their problem is the shortage of IT ops. So even though we provide their software, they don't have a talent to use their software. So, uh, so what we do is we uh, make a procurement of laptop and configurations and send the laptop and we control all of the devices and SaaS. So we are providing an end-to-end service to the customer. So in that case, you would be providing security updates for the devices and handling like shipback yeah. repairs and things like that. So how do you, how does that scale? Because that, that doesn't scale as smoothly as like a SaaS business, right? Yeah, that's a good point. We decided to provide this service uh, only in Japan. So um, this is a very R&D for us. So in Japan, we can scaling up because our Japan is not so huge market. Is the hardware component something you might roll out globally in the future if it's successful in Japan? Or is there something unique about the Japanese market that you think? Uh, I think we're going to do that in the future globally, uh, but uh, not now. Well, I mean, it certainly is something that's needed by small, medium businesses everywhere in the world, mm -hmm. especially as IT becomes more central to more and more businesses. Yeah, yeah. But Joseph, in general, has very big plans for going global. Yeah, yeah. This is our ambitious. We're going to start the operation outside of Japan. We started from September with 40 countries. So every SMB's enterprise company have the same pain point in New York or San Francisco, Tokyo, London, Sydney. Everywhere they're facing on the new problem that is our happen after the COVID. So how did you choose which markets you were going to go into first? We start from the U.S. because our U.S. is a very big market. And uh, we have our product team and marketing team in U.S. U.S. is our uh, definitely primary market. Also Singapore, which is the mid-price of India and Japan. We have a big tech team in India, so we put some of the sales are in Singapore. So these are two markets are the primary for us. Usually the, the two biggest reasons founders give me for going to the U.S. market is either the importance of the competition or yeah. the importance of the development. Eventually, you're going to have to go to the U.S. market because that's it's the most competitive. Yeah. And so you might as well start fighting in there as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And the other reason's been on development talent mm -hmm. to access the most qualified, the most advanced developers. Mm -hmm. So for Joseph, what was the, the driver of focusing in the U.S. market first? Our market. The market? Market. Uh, in terms of our talent, the technology are developed in India. Product design, we build a product located in Silicon Valley. And go-to-market team are in the Tokyo, Singapore, Silicon Valley. But uh, why we started business in U.S. is our market. That makes sense. Let's talk about Japan in general. So you mentioned before that, I don't know if I could call it lucky, but 
you sort of launched in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. And during COVID, there was this incredible demand for things to move remotely, for processes to move to the cloud. It was a huge boom for SaaS software and cloud services throughout the country. And we also think, saw things like remote work, process outsourcing, I mean, an ideal environment for companies like Joseph's. Now that COVID is past and we're returning to normal, mm -hmm. is that trend continuing or has some of it been rolled back? Answer is yes. Not, not so many companies can manage a fully remote work, but their employees, the people like to remote work, but we need to connect with the folks. Um, we need to discuss the ideas. So in that case, um, the office is very variable. So I think most of the company keep the style of remote working, the three days office, two days home. And what about the move to the cloud and the move for more SaaS services? Is that something, it seems like that is still accelerating in Japan. Yes, the cloud has a bunch of benefits for everybody, so, um, the clients and the developers. Yeah, people understand the power of the cloud in this COVID. So the DX. Digital yeah. transformation, uh, yep. Many people start to use the cloud service. In Japan, I think is a really unique and fantastic opportunity for SaaS startups here in that, especially at the enterprise level, the systems integrators controlled so much of the company's IT spend, they controlled even like hardware provisioning. Yeah. And I think SaaS is providing an opportunity to skip a whole generation of technology mm -hmm. and, and come in at like much lower cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Uh, enterprise SaaS and the SMB SaaS is different, but the new phenomenon are in Japan are the shortage of worker. So we are facing on the very critical shortage of labor and we need to introduce the software and the robots. And I think of Japan will be the first advanced country that adopt our efficiency. That makes sense. I mean, there's certainly a huge pressing need for it. Yeah. Before I let you go, mm -hmm. I want to ask you what I call my, my magic wand question. Mm -hmm. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand, and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the way uh, people adopt new technologies, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? I would change the labor system. How, how would you change it? People think that stays there one company for forever, uh, or sometimes are. Uh, I feel that directly speaking, it's a company cannot do the layoff. I, I don't say that I want to do that, but because of this makes people that are, don't have the agency or the passion to do something, it makes energy low. The problem of Japan is that people don't have energy to, you know, um, growing by themselves or invest themselves. So they don't really have a passion for Yeah, passion work. for the work. That is the cause of lacking the innovations. Once people have the passion to the work, that helps the country empower their innovations. 
Walk me through that. So how would changing the labor laws lead the employees to be more passionate and more innovative? I think that is very opposite way. But from my point of view, people don't make an effort to improve themselves well. And also the management side don't require the high target. So I started a business in India or Singapore or US, um, so it's a totally different views. People have the motivation to improve themselves because that makes them better life, better positions. I, I agree with that, but I'm curious yeah. about why? Because I've heard two different theories about why that works that way. Okay. So the one theory is kind of fear. Yeah. They, they realize that if they don't work hard, they can get fired. Yeah. And the other theory is more reward. Mm -hmm. That they realize if they do work hard, they can get further advancement and, mm -hmm. and get rewards. So which do you think is like the stronger effect? I think both. The uh, labor system, is a current low liquidity labor system, makes the worker low motivation uh, because uh, that is a low reward and a low requirement and low pressures. Yeah, it's in US or Singapore, India, people are very work hard and get the uh, you know, engagement to the companies. But sometimes they can decide to leave the company. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's actually both, they both kind of go together, I suppose. Yeah. It's, it's the, the sort of flow mm -hmm. of people that yeah. makes the change. Liquidity. So back to the questions. I'm going to change the liquidity of the people. I feel that Japan is a low liquidity, low flow culture. Uh, people stay one place forever, working with the single companies, and they're very single relation to the community. But once they expose to a different world, uh, they can get stimulations and, uh, you know, uh, live the other countries or yeah. I, I want to improve employee mobility. That makes sense. And I, I think that the situation seems to be improving in Japan now. Yeah, right? I, mean, I think so. More people like from mid-career at enterprises leaving to join startups mm -hmm. and, and... Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, it's their mobility um, brings ideas and luck and passions. Of course, people can stay in one place by his or her own decision making, but the uh, society itself don't encourage the mobility. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I want to change society to encourage the mobility of the people. Well, it sounds like Japan's on the right track anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, listen, Yasta, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. And we're back. As tools like Josis become more and more prevalent, the age of shadow IT as a SaaS go-to-market is coming to a close. And that's a shame. I mean, Yasu is absolutely correct. The security and overspend issues we talked about are very real and very important. But still, the way Shadow IT empowered individual teams to select the software that's the best fit for them led to huge gains in innovation and in team productivity and satisfaction as well. 
Shadow IT has been one of the driving forces of the SaaS boom over the last 15 years. Getting back to Joseph's. Venture capital funding of seed stage corporate spinouts is pretty rare in the US, but it's becoming increasingly common here in Japan. And while it's fairly common here for VCs to invest in spinouts, even when the parent company maintains a controlling interest, Yasu and the team structured the cap table right. The parent company, Roxel, is just one investor among several, and the control lies with the founding team, just like it should at any early stage startup. What is unfortunately still unusual, however, is Yasu's decision to hand over the reins of his post-IPO startup and to start again. Yasu is not exactly unique in his decision, but such founders in Japan number in the single digits. Far too many people see the IPO and the status and wealth that comes with it as the end goal. You are done. You have now won the startup game. Well, maybe. But for startups, and for most things that are worth being passionate about, the goal of the game is not to win. The goal is to keep playing. If you want to talk more about SaaS and Shadow IT, Yasu and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 209 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you enjoy Disrupting Japan, share a link online or just tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is free forever, and letting people know about the show is the absolute best way you can support the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.